Hello and welcome to Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for Baptist. And I'm Amanda Comer, the system director for advanced practice providers. I'm Caitlin Mize, a board certified OBGYN in Oxford, Mississippi. And I'm Katie Sabache, a certified nurse midwife and women's health nurse practitioner. Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for coming on the show. Um, we look forward to hearing a lot more about some updates in, in women's health. Uh, I know as an, an internal medicine physician, this is certainly an area that I could use a lot more experience with. And so uh, I, we really appreciate both of your expertise. Thank you for having us. So you mentioned that you were a certified midwife, one of the kind of dark spots uh, in my brain, in my knowledge, is just I don't really know much about midwifery. Can you give us just an overview of the topic and, and kind of explain how it fits in? Sure. So just kind of a little bit about me. Um, I'm from Atlanta. I worked as a labor and delivery nurse, and then I uh, moved up to D.C. to go to Georgetown to get my midwifery degree. And so um, it's a master's degree, and I wanted to do midwifery and get my women's health nurse practitioner just because my husband and I are from the South and we knew we'd move back here. And I just thought that having both of those, because there are a lot of unknowns about midwives, specifically certified nurse midwives. So as a midwife, I see patients in the clinic, take care of annual exams, birth control, kind of general OBGYN concerns, um, see pregnant patients throughout their pregnancy, postpartum in the hospital. I can deliver babies. So that's always exciting. Um, you know, placenta repair, take care of them postpartum round, different things like that. Um, I love my job that I get to do a lot of things that Dr. Mice gets to do, but then I also get to work with her where, what I say is like where my brain stops, like where my scope of practice ends and I can collaborate with her or any of the other physicians we work with. She's selling herself short a little bit too. She does a lot of our education and has the time built into her schedule to say you fail your glucose screen and we're doing gestational diabetes management. You know, we can, I do a lot of education myself, but also there are times where somebody's, it's just not getting through. And so we need a little extra time with Katie to sit down and really go through things. Um, she's awesome at birth plans. That's a big hot topic right now. and. The thing I like about Katie is that when it comes from the midwife, that this is what birth plan is safe and reasonable. A lot of times it's met with a lot less hostility than for me. And at the end of the day, she and I have the same birth plan. <laughs> and so, um, but it really helps us kind of break through that stigma uh, that, you know, I'm the doctor and I just don't want you to do it because it's easier for me to do it the other way. Um, and then she teaches our prenatal classes, which is awesome, which the number one thing that I love about that prenatal class, I made my husband come to that prenatal class, um, is that it's the when to go to the hospital. So it's a lot of that question that fills up the patient line at night of, is it time? Do I go? Um, and so Katie's able to be like, look, this is normal. And this is what you're going to do at home. And this is when you go to the hospital. And so. I use her as an education source a lot that when, you know, I'm seeing 25 to 30 people a day and trying to get in and out and do as much as I can, but I know somebody needs a little bit more 
stop one-on-one, we can fit it into Katie's schedule. And so it's really good to have that back and forth. Mm-hmm. No, that sounds great. You know, and, and midwifery is very fun to say. So you also have that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So funny story is in March, 2020, um, <laughs> We, you know, we went to like a lot of telemedicine, like, every, you know, a lot of people did. And there were a couple of um, Dr. Mize's patients that lived in my neighborhood. And so I literally got on my bike in my neighborhood and rode to their houses to take their blood pressures. And I, you know, took a selfie video to send to her of call the midwife on my bike, riding through yeah. the rain to take these blood pressures yes. for their telemedicine. That's exactly what I was picture, picturing for sure. Yes, she does have a bike. She will sometimes pull it out, um, but never for home deliveries, just at the hospital. Yeah. That's perfect. And that's a perfect question. Do you deliver babies at home? Great question. I think some of the biggest misconceptions about midwives are that for certified nurse midwives. Now, there are great midwives that deliver babies at home. But for the majority of certified nurse midwives who have that different education board certification, the majority of us deliver in hospitals. Um, And so I have never delivered a baby at home. I don't plan to right now. Um, But yes, just deliver babies in hospitals. Another um, frequent misconception is that you cannot have an epidural with a midwife, which is also not true. You can absolutely, in a hospital setting, have an epidural. I... I'm a big believer, like Dr. Mize was saying, in education and empowerment. So I just want our patients to know their options and to feel equipped in making that decision and make the one that is best for them and their family. Perfect. So let's shift gears and talk a little bit about some updates just in women's health. You know, there's a lot going on. It's very hard to keep track of all the different guidelines and how often they change. Um, And so you know, as, as an internist, you know, we, we do see a lot of, uh, patients for mammograms and, and cervical cancer screening, but I know also that a lot of, a lot of patients prefer to see their OBGYN as kind of their primary care doctor. How, how do you go about, um, you know, mammography guidance and cervical cancer screening and what has really been the, the updates over the last uh, few years related to these? Um, I think cervical cancer is the kind of the hardest one to get people on board with, especially some of your older patients, because you're coming at them right now with something that is completely foreign to them. And in fairness, the one thing I like to tell patients is that these are new guidelines, but really they changed in 2012. So maybe we're all just kind of getting on board with them. Um, But the big thing that um, is that a lot of parents actually have trouble with, we don't start cervical screening until 21 anymore and so it used to be if you wanted to have birth control you showed up you got a pap smear at 16 and got your pack of pills but now you know those first visits even those birth control visits at the beginning are really to get to know each other there's no pelvic exam unless it's indicated for other reasons um, until 21 and that's when you get your first um, your first pap smear and then after that um you can actually screen every three years as long as the um, the pap smear is normal. So if you have a normal pap smear from ages 21 to 29, you can do cytology alone. So that's just your standard thin prep pap every three years. And then starting at age 30, you can kind of go in a, diff- a couple different ways. You can do a pap alone every three years, which... 
I feel like a lot of times is the default. A lot of people aren't comfortable going to the every five years, which is where the um, cytology and HPV testing comes in is every five years. And interestingly enough, the SCCP guidelines, the ones they're actually coming out with the latest ones are a lot going to just HPV screening every five years. So not even cytology. Um, but for right now, I think most people in private practice, most people, most insurances are going with the every three year cytology or every five year co-testing, which is cytology and regardless of result HPV as well, which you have to order differently. So it's for other providers, it, you don't just circle the typical PAP with HPV reflex. That's totally different than co-testing. You can have a normal PAP smear and, uh, and a positive HPV. And so you have to order them as a pap smear and a HPV. Hmm. That's good to know. What age do you stop? So if everything is normal, <laughs> always the caveats, if everything is normal, I, I like to tell my ladies they graduate from pap smears at 65, um, which is also hard for them to, um, to wrap their head around, unless of course they have new high risk behaviors and that's something totally different. Um, but also if you have a hysterectomy for a non-malignant reason, so say you have fibroids and heavy bleeding um, or prolapse and you have a hysterectomy for those things and have your cervix removed, then we aren't doing the routine vaginal cuff paps anymore that uh, a lot of people, quote, grew up doing. And mm -hmm. so as long as your um, pap smears have all been normal, then you can um, graduate at 65 and then otherwise you need 20 years of normal um, before you can stop doing pap smears. So say you had to add normal at 50 and bump you up to 20 as long as everything was normal. And, and what about any updates to guidance on mammography? I know one recent thing with COVID was that if you got the vaccine, you were supposed to delay mam mammography by like three months or something or 90 days. I can't remember what it was. Maybe you can tell us um because you'd get some lymphadenopathy on the side where you um had the vaccine what what other updates are we seeing so with breast cancer screening that's katie and i were actually talking about it beforehand you can literally find a guideline from any of these people and go with it um and so acog um is you know our standard of care and they're still saying a screening mammogram at 40 and then an annual mammogram thereafter. Um, but you, there are recommendations that don't start them until 50 and there are recommendations that are every two years. And so I just sit down with my patients based on family history, other risk factors. I typically recommend a screening starting at 40 and then I'm like, look, as long as you fall into one of these good guidelines in your 40s, if you can get me one every one to two years, I'm not going to yell at you, <laughs> um, but I'm overly excited if you at least get if you get it every year for me. But as long as you get one every one to two years until you're 50 and then start your annual, then you're still falling within the proper guidelines. So let's talk about the HPV vaccine. What are the recommendations for, for the vaccine? So the recommendations for the vaccine now are anyone, they started at 11 to 12. So a lot of our girls now, our pediatricians are actually um, starting them. And 
then it's going, it used to be that it was through 26 years old, but now in the last couple of years, it's actually extended to 45. Um, and so if you get the vaccine, one kind of the benefits of getting it at that 11 to 12 year old visit is if you get it before you're 15, it's a two vaccine series. Um, the It's a non-valent vaccine and you get it um, two shots if you're under 15. Once you're over 15, it is a three shot series. I have a lot of conversations with, um, especially a lot of our teenagers that come in and because they're, you know, guardian or mother is with them. And there's still, I think, a little bit of the stigma with the HPV vaccine of, oh, if you're giving them this vaccine because HPV is sexually transmitted, then you're allowing them, you know, to giving them permission to have intercourse or something like that. And so I try to just encourage more the parents, of, especially the teenagers that I see, that this is a really, really good vaccine. Like it is very effective at protecting from the HPV uh, from the virus. And so, and all the different things that can come from that cervical cancer. That's why we're testing for HPV later. But once you're testing for that, you're kind of out of the window of the most effective HPV vaccine. And so I really try to encourage them, like you are just protecting yourself and trying to get it ideally before 26, just to, before their exposure to HPV, ideally. Um, then afterwards, depending on what's going on, can still get it later. I think that's another thing too. People think once I've had HPV or once I've had an abnormal pap, I can't get it, but you can, and it's still effective um, to get, even if you've had a history of HPV. That's good to know. Yeah. And I know it's recommended now for, for males as well. Have y'all seen any uptick, I guess? And I, I know you probably don't see a lot of males, but I don't know if, you know, with pregnancy, if the partners ever want to get the vaccine. See many males. No. <laughs> yeah. Especially with COVID, you know, uh, it's, we're just now seeing daddies back in the and partners back in the clinic. Um, and so there was like a whole year there where I was meeting dads for the first time at the hospital wow. <laughs> or during, over FaceTime for the visits. Um, well, that, that's what I was going to ask. So if I'm childbearing age, thinking about becoming pregnant, if I'm pregnant or breastfeeding, do you recommend receiving the COVID vaccine? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. At this point, it is the recommendation of ACOG, of SMFM, of CDC, of everyone that anyone of reproductive age, especially anyone pregnant, receive the vaccine. Um, and so that is 90% of my day these days. Yeah. So have you noticed? So from our data, we were actually seeing more females in that age group get the vaccine over the last couple of weeks than we had seen in the previous five weeks. Are y'all seeing the same thing in your clinic or are you seeing more people rushing to get the vaccine now that cases are arising again? Absolutely. I'd say on a given day, I probably have three to four leave here and go to the pharmacy. Wow. Yeah, I actually had a very interesting um, client who came in for her first pregnancy visit. She had previously worked in a COVID ICU in another state. And she didn't get the vaccine, but now that she's pregnant, she was like, I'm very nervous. I remember seeing all these pregnant patients getting so sick. Can I get my vaccine? I was like, yes, please go ahead. You know, and so it's, it, somebody that saw firsthand ICU, you know, this now being pregnant, where well, I was like, I, I try to counsel people, if you can't, before you are going to get pregnant, go ahead and get anybody, really. Um, just anybody, everybody. <laughs> 
Is there a certain stage in your pregnancy that you should get the vaccine? Or is there a stage that's better? Do you wait to the to the latter stage or any time? Right now they're recommending as soon as you can do get it. Um, so some of the newest studies, I know the first studies that came out were showing that people had gotten in the third trimester, those babies were actually born with antibodies. But some of the newest ones that came out showed that people who were getting it even at weeks five and seven, those babies were born with antibodies as well. Um, and so we, the other thing with um, COVID that uh, Katie and I were actually talking about at lunch is the monoclonal antibodies. Now, pregnancy is a standalone criteria to be an eligible candidate for it. So you have to have the, the four positive test symptoms, be over 40 kilos and B12, but pregnancy itself puts you in that category where you're higher risk and um, eligible for those antibodies or antibody therapy. So. That is good to know. All right, let's uh, shift gears uh, again and, and talk a little bit about pregnancies. Um, what are some of the major trends that you're seeing in your practice? Um, you know, one of the things I've been reading is that you know, more and more people have delayed pregnancy. So you, you may be seeing a higher number of geriatric pregnant patients. Is that is that the case? And and why do they call somebody over than 35 geriatric? My my wife wants to know. I refuse to do it. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. Um so 35 is that number in pregnancy. And what I like to tell people who are 35 and freaking out, it's where the line on the graphs starts going up um, for risk factors as far as like preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, um, but also things like Down syndrome and uh, chromosomal anomalies. And then um, later in pregnancy, increased risk of things like stillbirth. Um, but 35, like I said, is just where that graph starts kind of going up. Um, and so I would say that definitely I think we have an increase in um, older patients. I wouldn't say all geriatric or advanced maternal age, but I feel like my average pregnant patient is somewhere between 29 and 32 right now. <laughs> I think it's also interesting. I moved here from D.C. to Mississippi and the the average age is very significantly lower here so it's you know very much like where you know where you are that you're seeing it but we are very supportive of whatever age you are and we just talk to people about the different risks and here's what we're going to do about it you know we have different screening we can do when your ultrasounds might start towards the end when we would recommend delivery but i it does i don't know i feel like especially being in mississippi everybody yeah. starts to panic around 35 i'm like you are fine here, you know, yeah. let's talk, let's talk about it. Let's just have a conversation versus just saying you're geriatric or the ICD-10 is elderly. Right. Elderly. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. What screening do you perform? So say I'm a geriatric pregnant female, what screening would be recommended? So we do um, screening for things like Down syndrome and chromosomal abnormalities. Um, the most common one that like, I, like to tell my girls that your mama did um, is the quad screen that we all know. Um, the and then the other testing versions of things are a sequential screen, which is a first trimester screen, and then a second trimester screen. Um, but the most common thing that we're doing these days is something called non-invasive pregnancy screening um, that actually looks at something called free fetal DNA. So a tiny bit of baby's DNA is floating in mama's bloodstream. 
Um, so we're able after 10 weeks or so to collect that and analyze it for um, mom's risk of things like Down syndrome, trisomy 13, trisomy 18, um, and also like sex chromosome abnormalities. And we actually offer this to, to everyone, and regardless yeah. of age. Um, and that's, I think, I don't know. Who, that's a guidelines. recommendation. Yeah, just to offer that to everybody, everybody, not just if you're over 35 years old. Uh, one of the other things that we've seen change over the last you know, two or three decades, I guess, is the, the rates of obesity in our patients, especially in the Southeast, have, have continued to go up and prevalence of diabetes and, and hypertension have gone up. I'm, I'm sure you're seeing it in your practices. I, I guess, how do you go about uh, treating and counseling those patients that become pregnant as compared to uh, those without those conditions? I think it's important, and that's where we use our well woman, where we're not doing a pap every year anymore, is that we're, I like to call it optimizing the host, like you, to get ready for pregnancy. Um, ideally, if you can get your BMI down into the normal range, if you can control things like high blood pressure and diabetes, um, for my diabetics specifically, I'm like, if you can get your A1C less than seven, I'm very like, I can deal with that. I can work with that in pregnancy. If you can get your blood pressure controlled on one agent that's safe to use in pregnancy, those are all things that are gonna make your pregnancy healthier and easier um, on you and on your body. Because having those things, having diabetes, mamas who aren't diabetic become diabetic. So if you're already diabetic, that placenta is just, going to increase your diabetes and your insulin requirement if you're not insulin um, dependent already. Or if you are, we're looking at really high levels of insulin. Um, and it increases if you're already a chronic hypertensive, you're going to be more likely to have preeclampsia than someone who is not um, hypertensive. And so if you can work on those things prior to pregnancy, awesome. But most of the time people are coming in early in pregnancy um, with those diagnoses, and then we're having to start from there. And so with those people, it's just early control as soon as possible with um, agents that we know are safe and really kind of changing the thought process, especially with diabetics, that their levels that their family medicine and their internal medicine doctors are okay with not pregnant are way different than our levels that we want you to be in pregnancy. That's one of the hardest things to get across to people that I want your fasting less than 95. I want your postprandial less than 120 at two hours. Um, and so those are much stricter guidelines than some people are used to seeing. Um, and it's a whole different ballgame. We're checking blood sugars at different times than pre um, gestational diabetics are used to. We're checking them after you eat instead of before you eat. Um, and those kind of things. So it's a lot of education piece and a lot of sitting down, a lot of screening blood work at the beginning, um, making sure that we're not on an ACE inhibitor um, or an ARB, that we're on insulin that's safe in pregnancy. Um, you know, we used to use a lot of globuride in pregnancy, but now the recommendation is that we don't use globuride. We use insulin frontline and metformin. Um, and so it's just sitting down and getting everything into the right um, path, I guess is the best way to put it. And, and what about weight gain? How do you counsel you know, the newly pregnant diabetic patient that's overweight on how much weight they should gain during pregnancy? 
Honestly, I sold gently first. <laughs> just because I think there's a lot of weight stigma and yeah. um, body shaming. And, you know, so we, ch we try to navigate that as best we can. Of Yes, the guidelines are, I can't remember the exact amount, 11 to 20 if 11 you're overweight, 25 pounds, 35 pounds weight gain if you're, quote, normal BMI. Um, I feel like, especially in the South, a lot of times you have to reassure people that the only person who cares that you haven't gained weight is your mama and your grandmama. <laughs> because honestly, a lot of my diabetics and my obese patients, once they start taking care of their body in pregnancy, will lose weight. Um, and that's okay. As long as baby is growing appropriately, um, baby gets what baby needs. And you may just be healthier in pregnancy. I had my favorite success stories. I have a chronic hypertensive, pre-gestational diabetic patient who had had two previous losses with severe preeclampsia at like 26 weeks, who just, you know, got pregnant again, had planned this pregnancy, was just in a total different mindset. And after pregnancy, she had been so good and so well controlled that she was completely off any diabetic meds by the time she delivered. Um, she went home went to her primary care because she was transitioning out of pregnancy um care and like i saw her back at her six month visit and she's like oh yeah like i'm not on any meds at all now and her a1c is in normal range so that you can be healthy in pregnancy the other thing that um is big is that exercise is encouraged in pregnancy we like it when you exercise you can start an exercise program um if I think the old stigma is if you're used to it, you can keep doing it. But now, like, if you want to start a new program, that's fine. That's healthy. We love that you're getting exercise for you and for baby, but also it's going to help decrease your insulin um, requirements. It's going to help make up the pregnancy better. And it actually has been shown to help with baby long term, even as they um, go into childhood and adulthood. It's going to help their overall health as well. So there is an awareness recently on C-section rates. So how many C-sections are we doing? Who are we doing C-sections on? And then can I have a C-section after, or can I have a vaginal birth after a C-section? Talk to me about that. So the nationwide average is about 30%, right? Right. Right around there. I think Mississippi is a little bit higher. As a midwife, I don't do C-sections, so my current C-section rate is zero, Excellent. which is really good. <laughs> but um, obviously, I do have patients Great that job. do C-sections, but it goes on the it goes on the it positions. My C-section, right? yeah. But um, yeah, I'll let you talk a little bit. That's my. Let me brag on her. She does have a. She works really, really hard to promote vaginal birth, and um, is a big. I don't know, a big advocate for women in that and following the guidelines and the evidence to help women with that. And um, there's a great bulletin from ACOG about um, safe prevention of the primary cesarean delivery. We, we have it in front of us for some of the numbers of kind of reasons of why to encourage vaginal birth over cesarean. I think really the first thing is to prevent a repeat C-section you first have to prevent a primary C-section. Um, and so a lot of things have changed in the last several years as far as working towards that. ACOG set out new standards, new guidelines as far as when something is 
a failure to progress or a failed induction. Um, you know, the catchphrase is six is the new four. It used to be if you came in and you were four centimeters, you were in active labor and we had a baby. Um, but really, until six centimeters now, the curves um, show that that's active labor is starting at six centimeters. Um, and so we're not doing C-sections because somebody's hung at four or hung at five. You have to get to six to be active and get to that failed active labor stage. Um, now, there are always going to be indications for C-sections. Um, I think 15 to 18 percent is the number that Blue Cross will quote you that you're supposed to do. Um, but, you know, things like my baby is breech, my baby has congenital anomalies that we would be safer to deliver via C-section. You have uterine anomalies that would make uh, delivery safer via C-section. Um, and so with preventing that primary C-section, your risk of morbidity and mortality just goes up with each subsequent C-section. Things like abnormal placentation, so like accretas and those kind of things that could lead to um, increased bleeding in mama. Um, and need for things, further surgery, hysterectomies, those kind of things um, can only be prevented if you prevent the first one. Um, but really, just when you prevent the first one, like if you look at the numbers, I think the number one reason people want to just have a C-section is they don't want to have incontinence later. So there's no difference. Like you're going to have, if you're going to have urinary incontinence, you're going to have it whether you have a vaginal delivery or a C-section. It's just that baby being there. The weight of carrying a baby for 39, 40 weeks can cause that. Um, and then you to decrease like risk of third and fourth degree lacerations is one that people quote a lot. If you've had those in the past, that will all like if you've had a fourth degree laceration, it will always make you a candidate for a primary C-section later. But just having a C-section to prevent them, it doesn't, the numbers really don't work out. Kind of what we're, what we're talking about is there are risks, there are risks with C-section. As yeah. I talked to some people about, it's a major abdominal surgery. Yes, it absolutely saves moms and babies' yes. lives. Like we are not countering that at all. But if you look at the numbers of increase in maternal mortality, morbidity, even the risk we were surprised by this about amniotic fluid embolus um, goes up with a C-section versus a vaginal birth. And, because of all of that and seeing the rise in C-sections over the past 20, 30 years, and also the increase in all these other things I was talking about saying, okay, we need to look at this and see kind of what we can do differently to try to protect um, moms, babies, if it's not a necessary surgery for them. Uh, I think that's all very helpful. And I think one of the other topics that, that we had on there was feedback, which seems to be popular in, in some areas, you know, what is, what is y'all's experience with it? Um, so currently in Oxford, our official policy at Baptist is that we cannot electively schedule or plan a VBAC. Um, so it's a nature of anesthesia, OB in-house, all that kind of thing. Um, now, I'm lucky that I trained at university in Jackson and saw a lot of VBACs. There are people who are excellent candidates for vaginal deliveries, especially those that had a vaginal delivery and then had to have a C-section for some other reason. Or if you had to have a C-section because just because your baby was breech. 
um, those are all good indications and are good candidates for VBACs. There is a calculator that you can find online. Um, it's a VBAC success calculator. Um, and we just try to use that to counsel patients. You know, if you had a C-section the first time because you got to eight centimeters and stayed there for 24 hours, you know, the likelihood is less that you're successful with a VBAC the next time. Um, but if you had a C-section because you never labored and your baby was malpresentation, then you might have a much higher success rate of a VBAC. Um, we are lucky too that in Oxford that there are several places, Baptist Memphis being one, that we can refer those patients to if that's the plan of care that they want to um, to take. Um, there are the risks that people look at are of uterine rupture, um, and with a low transverse incision, which is the typical incision on the uterus that we use in term vertex deliveries, that risk of uterine rupture is around one percent. Now, when you start getting into multiple C-sections or like a classical C-section through uh, the actual contractile part of the uterus, that percentage goes up to closer to 10%. Um, and so just making sure that mom knows the risks, benefits, and those kind of things can help guide that. But like I said, we are lucky that we have people in Memphis that we can refer them to if that's the route they want to go. Dr. Moss, Katie, this has been so helpful. Are there any final comments for the audience? I said, go get your vaccine. Whether you're pregnant, want to get pregnant, never want to get pregnant, go get your vaccine. Well, that has been really great advice. And thank you so much, uh, both of you, for coming on the show. I, I know I learned a lot. And and thank you, everybody, for listening to Right Care Baptist. Remember, if you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem your CME credit. <laughs>